0: Okay, well, um, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Exodus. So, just by way of a quick whirlwind summary, uh, after you know, encountering this now this man Moses, who is who was born and uh, born in Egypt and and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and then became a prominent man in the country, but then as the Lord starts to work in his heart to give him a burden for his people, the Jewish people, that Moses ends up defending one of his brethren by killing an Egyptian. This crime becomes known. Uh, It becomes uh, a serious matter that literally could mean his life is taken for for that murder. And uh, the book of Acts chapter 7 tells us this happened when Moses was 40 years old. Uh, Moses, by that time, is a very prominent man in Egypt. Some believe that he may have even been in the succession of Pharaoh, but now he's got he's gotta make a hasty retreat and he's got to uh to to go out into the wilderness and um, and this becomes a point of no return for Moses to be in his people with his people at that time. Now Moses had no idea of this, but the fact of the matter was before Moses could be used by God, God had to prepare him. And whether he knew it or not, Moses was too big for God to use at that point in his life when he was forty years old. Sometimes we think that, you know, gaining all this wisdom, gaining power and stature and, and the like, will make us more useful to God. And uh, Moses is another, yet another example in the Bible. And there's many that that actually is the opposite of what it means to be ready to be used by God. We need to be empty of ourselves before we're of much use to God. We need to be reliant solely on him, not on ourselves. And so this becomes uh, an instance where Moses is, much like Jesus, Moses is rejected by his people in his so-called first coming. You know, he, he believed that maybe by defending this man um one of his brethren that was that was in the midst of a fight with an Egyptian that that he would he would have his stature raised in the eyes of the Jewish people but the opposite happened and so he he makes an escape to Midian Midian was a place on the Sinai peninsula inhabited by nomadic descendants of Abraham and his wife Keturah which was a wife he took after the death of his wife Sarah and so he goes there he flees to there, and he meets the daughters of, of a priest of Midian. And, and we, uh, we, we can assume that because of the lineage of the Midianites from Abraham, that this man that's described as a priest of Midian might indeed have been a priest of the Most High God. And, uh, and Moses ends up marrying one of the daughters of this man, who we later find out is named Jethro. And his wife's name is uh, Zipporah. And he is now amongst the Midianites. He's taken a wife. He has a son. And we could kind of assume that by that time, Moses is of the mindset that Egypt was in his past. He will not be returning there. This is uh, a new life that he has. And he essentially becomes a shepherd. And we know that he literally occupies that Status for another 40 years until we roll into uh, chapter 3 of Exodus, and this is where Moses has the burning bush experience. He's out there on Mount Horeb, which is one and the same as Mount Sinai, and he's tending the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro, uh, which is interesting when you think about the humility uh, that, that is now... The, the reality of Moses' life—he once was in the palace, the son of uh, the adopted son of, of the princess, with probably unlimited, relatively unlimited resources and and you know palatial uh, accommodation. And now he is in such a humble state that he's not even tending his own sheep; he's tending the sheep of his father-in-law. And as he is out in the wilderness doing this. He, he sees this bush that's burning, and the and the bush is burning and yet not consumed. And so he takes uh, a moment to turn aside to behold this very unusual sight. And it's only after he gives full attention to this burning bush that the Lord speaks to him from it, and the Lord actually calls him by name, Moses, Moses, and. I think what we take from that is that, you know, Moses by this time probably figured, you know, he, he had a desire to do something for God's people 40 years ago. And it blew up in his face. And so he's pretty much a non-entity now. And, and, you know, God has no need or use for him. And yet, in the midst of encountering this unusual phenomenon, he hears the voice of God calling his name. And I think, I think we can take comfort in the fact that no matter how you think you matter in the kingdom of the Lord, he knows you by name. He would call you by name. And if we're attentive to listen to the Lord in our prayers, in our scripture time, you'll hear the Lord calling your name. You'll hear the Lord speaking directly to you about things that are very specific to your life and also things that matter in terms of the way in which God chooses to use you. And when, he, when, when the Lord, Lord gets his attention, the first instruction he gives to Moses is to remove the sandals from your feet. And uh, you know, again, understanding how that whole protocol worked in, the, in their time, um, removing one's sandals in any context was, was basically to humble yourself. If you're coming into somebody's home... You, you remove your shoes because you want to respect their their surroundings, their, their place. Um, and he's removing his sandals at the direction of the Lord because the place where he is now is a place where the Lord has met him. And we know that God, one of the most, perhaps the principal de- defining characteristic of God, is that he's holy. There's none other like him. And so he is, he is told that, look, you are in my presence. Remove your shoes, which, of course, he does. And then God explains uh, the plan, so to speak, that, that he, is, he is to go back uh, to Egypt. He is to go and to gather up God's people. He is to approach Pharaoh and to propose to Pharaoh that he now needs to let the children of Israel go And um, that's where we kind of left it last time. You know, he had said that I I hear the cry of the children of Israel. This is God speaking. And the oppression that they've been suffering at the hand of the Egyptians. And God now is saying the time is right to move all of the children of Israel to the land that I gave to their forefathers some 400 years in the past. And that's where we left it uh, last time. And, uh, and we see there in, uh, in verses 8, 9, and 10, he says, So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, this is in chapter 3, and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, that must have struck Moses like, like a ton of bricks hitting him right in the face. He remembers his last experience in Egypt. He understands, perhaps better than anybody, the sheer might and power and, and, and the ruthlessness of that regime to deal with anybody that would presume to tell pharaoh what to do and uh, this idea of god has come to deliver them but god has, has come to use moses in that deliverance don't don't misunderstand moses didn't deliver the children of israel god delivered the children of israel he just chose to use moses and we could be pondering that for 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 days and days is here's this guy who's done nothing but 10 sheep for 40 years god you're going to use him for your grand plan to release the children of israel from the bondage of egypt this is the same thing we talked about at the men's bible study last night is that of all the myriad of ways the infinite number of ways that god could choose to bring salvation to the world he chose the likes of us These earthen vessels, many of whom have cracks and filth, and yet God fills those empty vessels with the excellency of the power of God, and he gives us a commission to work his plan for the deliverance of humanity. This is something Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. He said, we then, as workers together with him, also plead with you, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. Kind of like he heard the oppression, the cries of the children of Israel in Egypt. He heard that. He says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And that day of salvation is accomplished, again, by the likes of mere men and women like us. And we could all ponder the things about ourselves that we find so deficient in that particular endeavor, and yet God chooses to use us in that way. And that's exactly what now Moses is being confronted with. And you see it clearly in verse 11 of chapter 3. Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And this is very often the natural next response to anybody who encounters the living god's call on their life go do this. I could tell you I've pastored this church for 20 years. I don't think there's ever been a day where I woke up and said, I got this. You know, I'm this this is my wheelhouse. I've never felt that way. I have always felt, God surely you could have made a better choice than me. But we we have to we have to understand that there's an arrogance in that statement. The arrogance is not, I'm great and God, I can't believe it's taken you so long to find me out. No, the arrogance is that we could ever think that God is incapable of using any of us to do any given thing. And so he, he says, who am I? 40 years be, uh, before, you know, Moses probably thought he was all that. He was a prince of Egypt um, he thought he was God's chosen instrument to deliver Israel. But now after 40 years of tending sheep and not even his own sheep, and now he's been tasked with this, uh, the natural question, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now notice that God doesn't answer that question. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't pour oil all over uh, Moses telling him what a great guy is and Really, Moses, you should understand that you're quite a gifted guy and that you're wonderful. No, he doesn't even answer the question. He doesn't even address the question. No, he tells him something significantly more important there in verse 12. So God said, I will certainly be with you. Boom, that's the answer to the question. The question is not who am I? The question is who is God? And of course, we know who God is. And so if God is saying, I will certainly be with you, do you think you're gonna go forward doing what God said with God being with you and you fail and you and God are in the locker room at halftime saying, wow, we never expected that. This is really not going well at all. You know, oh my gosh, I think, I think we're gonna lose. Not bloody likely. <laughs> he says, I'll certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Israel or out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Well, of course, he's referring to when, when, when they ultimately get back to Mount Sinai. That will be the place, of course, where God will give him uh, the law. And so Moses then says to God in verse 13 Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? And I mean, that would be just the way they would respond when, oh, really? Yeah, God sent you here? Well, what's his name? You know, you could you could just imagine them saying that. Now, they may not say it with such a, you know, a snarky attitude. They may ask that question because they have remembrance of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in almost every instance where they, God has an encounter with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, he always comes at them with a name that relates to the work that he's doing at that time. Uh, When Abraham, for example, encountered him in Genesis 17, he was described as the the, uh, almighty God. And then in Genesis 21, he was the everlasting God. And, And when Hagar had the encounter, he was the God who sees and, and you see this time and again, uh, when, when Jacob met him in, Je- in Genesis 35, he was El Bethel. And, and so they want to know, are we talking about the same God here? What's his name? And what did he reveal to you? Notice God's answer there in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me now this idea of God saying I am it's it's quite significant Um, you might at first say wow that would be a strange thing to call yourself but names in that day uh, you know they didn't look at a little book of names when a child was born and just pick what was current or maybe tried to stay away from what was current names meant something there and when God identified himself in previous instances with the children of Israel, um, he typically attached to his name a quality of him, the God who sees, the almighty God, the God who is our banner, all of these different uh, variations or descriptors that were attached to God. But now he is describing his essence. And the, the way it's translated to us here in English is the two simple words, I am, or to state it more fully, I am who I am. What God is describing with that moniker for himself is a quality about God known as aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, aseity. And what aseity means, it's the quality of being self-existing, in other words, the existence of one who has the quality of aseity is that there's, there's nothing else that contributes to or caused their existence. They, they exist independently of anything or anybody. And of course, there's only one being in, in all of our, our knowledge and all of creation and beyond uh, creation and all of eternity. There's only one being who fits that bill. And of course, that's the almighty God. He is All existing, he has always existed. He always will exist. And everything that there is, is is subsumed in him. There is nothing that we see or know or believe that doesn't have its origin in him. And the origin of all things rests with him. And so God is giving this particular uh, moniker for Moses to relate to his people so that they will know, because they've been now 400 years in the midst of a people who worship many gods. And this is very characteristic of a lot of religions around the world, is that there's, there's different gods for different aspects of life. and And so by God giving this particular name to himself, it makes it, it makes it clear, it make, takes all question away as to exactly who they're dealing with here. And um, the name would not be, uh, the name would not be foreign to the ear of the people that he's gonna bring this information to. Um, they would, you know, because we know that ultimately it, it kind of breaks down to Jehovah as, as, or Yahweh, the way they would, they would term it. And they had had heard that name for God previously. In fact, I think that word is used 160 times alone in the book of Genesis. So this would would tie them to the understanding that this almighty God that they heard of from their patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is one and the same with the one who is um, speaking to Moses. And, And let's be clear that Jesus Christ, it, it blows my mind because the guy up the street, Bart Ehrman, who makes a career of bashing the Lord and discrediting the Bible, one of one of his uh hobby horses that he loves to ride is that Jesus never claimed to be God. You know, that this was a this was a fabrication of followers of Jesus that came much after Jesus walked the earth. And this is just it's just clearly uh misguided. It's it's demonic in in its in its uh, exclusion of clear evidence and clear speaking of the Lord Jesus because Jesus attached himself to that moniker I am in numerous places in scripture. Uh, Jesus had the seven I am statements, right? I'm the bread of light. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth and the life. I'm the true vine. I am, I am, I am. Jesus said in John 8, 24, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In other words, if you do not understand that I, Jesus, a man in the flesh standing before you is also fully God, you will die in your sins. That that, that is really the path to salvation is that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ Christ, came in human flesh, yet being God, took the sins of the world upon himself, paid the sins of the world on the cross, died, was resurrected. If you don't believe that, you will die in your sins. Jesus made that clear because he's God. John 8, 28, then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then then you will know that I am and that I do nothing of myself, but as my father taught me, I speak these things. Jesus said in John eight fifty eight, and this was an awesome one, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Abraham goes back as far as the Jewish people can take their history. And before that, Jesus was, I am. That is to say, he's God. And of course, we know the scene in the garden. And by the way, we were there uh, last week, and it was just amazing. First of all, we had a perfect day. Second of all, this time we had made a reservation. We did it last time, but didn't get it. But this time, we had the reservation to go in the private part of the garden. We were able to go there to have a teaching, then to break off and to pray in the garden for a while. And the the of course, you're up on the Mount of Olives, so you got the Kidron Valley between you and the city. And so Jesus would be there on that night and he would be praying. And then all these men, these soldiers, come to arrest him. And um, they come and they approach Jesus in John 18. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, who are you seeking? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. You think a bunch of soldiers from the Roman army or the temple guard, whichever, would, would, would faint at the, at the notion that Jesus said, I'm the guy you're looking for, I am he. Of course not. They fell because they were in the, in the presence of the almighty God. And so make no mistake about it, uh, Jesus is God and he is present in our text here in what's going on with Moses. Verse 15 of our text now, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the Lord, uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. See, he wants to clearly make that, that link to their past. Clearly make that link to the promises that were given to the Jewish people that are still in full force and effect. And by the way, the promises that God has made to Israel are under assault by the enemy, have been since this time and before that time. And this is why we have what's known as supersessionism or replacement theology that has entered the church to try and completely erase the, the, the fidelity of God to keep his promises. And yet we were just in the land last week. Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the promises of God of bringing the children of the the Israelites back into the land and to make that land prosper is there for anybody who cares to see it, to go and see it and, and it's happening. And so he says, um, this is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, when God says, um, I have surely visited you, etc., and I will bring you up out of the affliction uh, of Egypt to the land you know, that he had promised, this was something that God had told to Abraham way back, way back before these people ever went into the captivity of Egypt. Genesis 15, 13, and 14. He said, God says to Abraham Know certainly that your descendants Will be strangers In a land that is not theirs And will serve them and this is now hundreds of years Before this is going to happen And will serve them And they will affect them, afflict them for 400 years And also the nation Whom they serve I will judge Afterward they shall come out With great possessions mm-hmm. I'm sure when Abraham heard that It's like What? I mean, all that stuff together just doesn't seem to fit. Here's God telling them, the time is now. I'm back. Then they will heed your voice. Wow, this is incredible. Moses is being told, you go to my people. You're going to basically prophesy to them, and they're going to heed your voice. It's amazing how many Old Testament prophets were called by God, and God said, and no one's going to listen to you. Could you imagine being hired for a job? Okay, here's the job. And by the way, you're going to fail miserably at it. Uh, no No one's going to receive what you're doing. But here he says that the children of Israel will heed your voice. And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now keep in mind. The pharaoh of these times is not the same pharaoh that received Daniel and had such a high regard for Daniel and was very uh, beholden to the things that Daniel asked concerning his family and his God. This is now hundreds of years later and this new crew of leadership in Egypt would have no time for this as we will surely see. Verse 19, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So there's that, that sort of assurance of failure. You know, you're going you're gonna to go, the people are going to believe you. You're going to go before Pharaoh. You're going to tell him exactly what I tell you to tell him. And he's going to say, nope, not doing it. Verse 20, though, God's got a plan. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, we will, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. Now, we're going to see as we make our way uh, further in in this narrative that by the time they are leaving Egypt after God has brought all the plagues, culminating with the death of the firstborns, and now they're being released from the country, that they will reap a huge treasure trove of riches that ultimately will be uh, very important for the time they will spend as they make their way through the wilderness. And it's interesting because in Deuteronomy chapter 15, amongst all the law there, there's actually a law that says you don't release a slave empty handed. In other words, it, when a slave in your in your household has fulfilled their obligation or whatever and now you're releasing that slave you you give them some some compensation if you will or some some substance that can help them have a life after they leave your your employ so you could consider what the israelites end up leaving egypt with this kind of compensation for 400 years of bondage you know uh so So he says there in verse 22, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Can you imagine that? Hey, we're leaving the country now. Uh, We finally prevailed over Pharaoh. Uh, And before we leave, could you please load up this sack with your gold and silver? And, and clothing, you know, I really like that outfit you have on. You got another one of those? Because I'd really like to have one, too. And they do it? Well, that's the hand of God. So we move into chapter 4. And in the first verse of chapter 4, we read that Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Okay, I mean, I don't think the Lord is chapped by that particular question that that um, Moses is raising because that's the way people generally are. You know, even sometimes when they see a sign, they don't believe it. And so Moses is simply saying, "Okay, I will, I will go, and I will say exactly what you said." But what if they say, "Ah, we don't believe you. You didn't, you didn't talk to the Lord." Moses is saying, well, "You know, what's my next move, God?" So the Lord said to him, "What is that in your hand?" He said, "A rod." Now you can imagine as Moses is out there in the, in the Sinai wilderness tending sheep, that he has a shepherd's staff in his hand. And so um, God said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. So this wouldn't be some kind of little gardener snake. This would probably be some pretty sizable serpent that Moses would see and recognize as poisonous, dangerous, And he literally jumps up and moves away. And then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. Now, Moses had to have exercised some faith there. Because if you're dealing with a dangerous snake, the last place you want to grab it by is the tail. Because that leaves four-fifths of a snake to whip around and bite you. But God told him to do it. By this time, I think he's pretty sure he's dealing with God because he just turned a stick into a snake. So, um, so he realizes now that uh, in verse 5, God actually says that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, the thing I love about this, and I've used this particular passage many times to illustrate uh, a particular point, and that point is this. We always have an idea of how we would accomplish God's plan. We might be very clear on what the plan is. And then we start to construct a method. And very often we've, we, we hit a roadblock. It's like, well, God, I want to do that. If only I had this and this and this and this. I mean, I could accomplish your plan if I just had this and this and this and this. And God says, what do you got in your hand? God, this is a big project. No, no, just tell me, what do you got in your hand? Uh, A stick. Perfect. Just what we need, a stick. You see, God, God, God is a God who loves long odds. Why is that? Because the last thing that God wants any of us to understand in a situation where he is raising us up to do something great for him is to think for one second that the success of the operation depended on our skills, our resources, our ingenuity. This is why I, you know, we didn't get a chance to do it this time because the time got away from us on the day we were supposed to go. But we typically go to Gideon Springs. This is the place where God assembled uh, Israel's 32,000 men who are about to meet 130,000 enemy. And, and God says, uh, Your number's too many for me. So he says, talk to your men, and if anybody's a little uneasy about this battle because they're outnumbered five to one, uh, you can send them home. 22,000 people, take them up on the deal. It's like, yep, we'll go, bye. So now he's got a very narrowed-down argument. Ultimately, it gets down to God says, okay, have your men go to the spring that we would be right there to see, and have them drink from the water. And the ones that get right down to the water and, and lap it up, you know, like a dog would, just drinking directly from the water, send them home. And the 300 that ultimately he kept were were people who crouched down and brought the water to their mouth with their hand. And when you hear the Israeli guys, Jeff, I'm sure you've heard this too, when you hear them speak at Gideon Springs about that moment, they typically are giving you the impression that those 300 guys, those were the Navy SEALs. Those were the guys you know, that were looking for the enemy and they were pulling the water up so they could keep their head up and they could see what was going on. And that is absolutely opposite of the whole way that chapter is constructed. It's constructed to give a billboard message that it's not your might, it's not your strength, it's not your courage, it's not anything that's in you, it's me God, the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The guys who were crouched down bringing it up with their hand were the guys like me, old fat guys who have arthritic backs and knees. They were the least of the soldiers you could have. And and that's the ones that God picked because he wanted to make it clear. I mean, he called Gideon, who was a farmer, Gideon was not a military man. He was not, you know, General Schwarzkopf of the Israelis. He kept saying to God, look, okay, I'm going to put this fleece out one more time. Are you sure? You know, really me? You know, surely you could do better than me. Uh, And now this is my army? I got old fat guys? Okay, we better have a heck of a weapon. Great, here's a torch, a a clay pot, and a trumpet. (laughs) You know, we're going to play a little jazz before we die. This is, this is the God, what do you got in your hand? What did David have in his hand when he met Goliath? He had a slingshot. You know, (laughs) Goliath's spear was described as like a a weaver's beam. I mean, the guy was nine foot six inches tall. He had every kind of battle armament. This was one of the things the Philistines were known for. They were superb at battle armament, at using chariots. When it came to military technology of the day, they were league-leading army, okay? And so what did David have in his hand? Well, I've got this here slingshot. Saul said hey here's my armor here's my sword here's my shield here's my armor David put it on I'm sure he was clanking around and said I can't even move in this I'm not using any of it went and got five smooth stones and won the day Uh, (laughs) Samson used the jawbone of a donkey uh, to beat up on a whole bunch of guys some little kid brought five loaves and two fishes and Jesus used it to feed 5,000 this is the God we serve and we need, we need to understand that if you hear the calling, it's done. If you hear the calling to go, if you hear the calling to do, just go and do. Don't worry about, well, wait a minute now, I've got a parts list here. I don't have this, I don't have that, I don't have that. I, don't have... I mean, the things that have been done for the glory of God have been done by people who, if they weighed it in the balance of what they understood as capability of themselves or resources that they possessed, would never have happened. Here we are, almost, well, 2,000 years later, the church is the most powerful force on planet Earth. It's keeping evil from taking over at the current time. So he gives that as a first sign, but God's not done. Furthermore, verse six, the Lord said to him, "Now put your hand in your bosom." <laughs> this is a great one, <laughs> and he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, leprous, leprous like snow. I'm not. I mean, that'd be a great party trick, but I'm not sure I'd want to, you know, have that particular sign to use. But but there it is. Both both the rod turning into a snake and then back to a rod, and the hand, a, a, a healthy hand, going into uh, seclusion bringing it out and it's leprous these are conversion kind of miracles that god can change god can take something in its current state and he can make it into something else that is the kind of miracle that should move people but then he gave him another one interesting that he gave him another one because those two are pretty good you know i mean i'm convinced but in verse 8 he says then it will be that if they don't believe you nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign, and it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on dry land, and the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Now this becomes a, a, a sign of judgment. You see, this, this is the way the Lord works. The Lord will show the truly seeking heart signs now, it may not be you know make an elephant appear in this room or something like that but the lord will show you clearly if you truly are seeking him but some people like for example the people of Capernaum and Bethsaida, Bethsaida and Chorazin Jesus pronounced woe on those people why Because Jesus did incredible miracles in those three cities. We were right there in the midst of those cities. And yet Jesus pronounces woe on a place, Capernaum, where where it was kind of the headquarters of his ministry for a lot of his Galilean ministry. But he says to them that it would be better for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. If they saw the miracles you saw, they would have repented. But you see these miracles and and, and you're not moved at all by them. And when the Lord has revealed himself to people repeatedly and in in unmistakable ways, and they reject it, there's nothing left but judgment. And this is why, this is how you understand the horrors of the tribulation. First of all, the people who accepted the grace of God, they're taken away. The people who are left still have a chance, but now they're in the midst of judgment. And that judgment is being brought on two sets of people. It's being brought on the nations, who are God-haters. It's being brought on God's chosen people, the Jews, as a means of chastisement and refinement. But, but clearly, God uses judgment only after grace and mercy have been extended in unmistakable ways. And so he's, he's putting in Moses' bag of tricks a sign of judgment you know, that, that water, life-sustaining water can be turned to blood. And um, he then goes on to say in verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, there's good reason to believe that Moses doesn't want to go. And he's, he's, shall we say, he's depreciating his assets needlessly, almost disingenuously, which is pretty bold considering he's speaking to God. Because in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, we read in a little bit of biography of Moses. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds now it's entirely possible that 40 years of of looking at the backsides of sheep and not really doing things that are maybe intellectually challenging could have put Moses to the place where he now just believes I'm just an empty shell of who I was Uh, I have a hard time putting a sentence together because I have been basically humbled to the point of making my living tending my father-in-law's sheep that's entirely possible but it's clear by the way this conversation is progressing that Moses is looking for a way out. The Lord says in verse eleven. So the Lord said to him, "Who has made the man's mouth? Uh, made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord?" Moses is saying, you, you, "You think your your dim-witted ability to speech is a surprise to me? Who made your mouth?" Who makes the ability for anyone to speak? Again, this gets back to don't ever entertain uh, a notion against God that God, I can't do what you ask because I'm me and I don't have that capacity. Who made you? You know who? Who knows better? Um, and so he says in verse twelve. Now therefore go, and I will I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Now, at this point, God has allowed Moses to reveal his true motivation. He is not lacking in ability. He's lacking in desire to serve God. It's not a question of, I can't, I don't have the ability. It's, I can't because I don't want to. This is, this is essentially what he's saying. Lord, please send by the hand of whoever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Believe me, the Lord's anger was not kindled because Moses was a little shaky and weak in the knees about his ability. No, the Lord clearly saw his heart. This was a man who did not want to go. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. Now there is a a line of scholarly thought that believes that actually God proposing Aaron as Moses' spokesman, and be clear, Aaron was not God's spokesman. Aaron was Moses' spokesman. Moses was God's spokesman. But this assigning Aaron to this task... Was, was very likely in, in the vein of a chastisement against Moses. Because as you track through the, the children of Israel making their way through the wilderness at the leadership of Moses, Aaron becomes an impediment to exactly what God is trying to do through Moses. The headline there is He's, he's the one who fashions the golden calf, He's the one who leads the false worship. He's the one that at one point will lead virtually a rebellion against Moses, he and his sister. Aaron was not a great choice for this. But because of Moses' reluctance and his lack of desire to follow through on what God had called him to, the Lord took this brother of his and put him in the midst of the plan as chastisement for Moses. And you'd say, well, why would God subvert his own plan? Well, again, God's plans are not always just about the destination. Very often, God's plan is is revealed in the journey. And we know that that's certainly the case with the journey of the Israelites going through the uh, wilderness. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. See what I mean when I say that Moses is God's spokesperson, not Aaron. Aaron will do and say exactly what Moses tells him to. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. And that rod ultimately would be referred to as the, as the staff or the rod of God. Because God uses it as a means by which Moses will illustrate the power and the will of God uh, as he goes forth on this assignment, I think we 'll stop there because we're we 're kind of out of time here, but uh, this is just fascinating account of how a human being can react to a calling by God when we think about what God is asking us to do in terms of what we know about ourselves and what we know about getting things done we 're going to miss entirely the opportunity to just go with God and watch what happens and watch the amazing work of God that happens. Uh, you know, there's just countless stories. Anybody who's been involved in ministry, this is why I love to uh, spend time with missionaries. Missionaries see things that the, the rest of us n- never get to see. And when they, when they tell you the things that are part of their experience, you almost find them Unbelievable. And yet, um, having been with enough of these people and actually being out in the field where they work, because of the faith that they have, because of the willingness to just go and do and let the Lord take care of the details, indeed, they see things that the rest of us would, would, would never see, never experience, and maybe disbelieve if we heard that they happened. And yet, these are things that are happening around the world Every day. And, and some of the most incredible ones are happening in places where the challenge of speaking the Word of God is the greatest. And the, and the sanctions against being a Christian are the most severe. Places like India, Africa, uh, Iran, and, and really throughout the Muslim world. So, great, great study there on, on how a man gets brought around to God's plan quite reluctantly, but God gets them there ultimately. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this account, Lord, for preserving this truth that we can witness the trepidation that Moses had at being called to do such a monumental thing for God. And, and Lord, to, to live his experience of knowing who he is, And having that sense that I'm just simply not worthy, God, there's so many people who'd be better at this than me, be a better choice than me. And yet God chose him, called him by name from a burning bush because God's plan included Moses. Lord, we pray that we would be open to hearing your voice for your plan for our lives. That when you speak to us, we would turn aside and give you our full attention when you lay out your plan, that we would willingly engage with it simply with whatever you put in our hands, Lord. Father, strengthen us all by virtue of this message, Lord. I pray, Father, that we would continue to desire to be useful for your plan, for your kingdom. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.